Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Advent, we're going to be doing a series called A Light in the Darkness. The goal of this series is to explore how God makes the divine known to us in ways that we can observe and experience in the world. We'll be going along with the themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. I hope you enjoy and have a wonderful Advent. And now I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanities. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been, and in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. All right, well, how's everybody doing? You getting church out of the way so you don't have to come tomorrow night? (laughs) You wouldn't do that, right? (laughs) All right, so uh, our scripture is Luke 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. So if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know we've been doing a sermon series. What's it called? Churches. Nobody knows anymore, right? Yeah. Genesis, Church and State. It's a, a light in the darkness. That's the that's, that's one, right? They all blend together after a while, don't they? <laughs> so this sermon series, it revolves around the various themes that are associated with our Advent candles. And uh, today is the last Sunday of Advent. Tomorrow evening is, of course, what? Christmas Eve, right? And we're going to talk about how Jesus brings great light into our world. So... Last week we talked about the theme of, do you remember? I maybe shouldn't even ask this. Uh, (laughs) The theme of joy. (laughs) 
This week, we're going to be talking about the theme of love. And to get into this, I'd actually like to talk a little bit about the scripture we just read from the Gospel of Luke. So this particular scripture, it is better known as the Magnificat. The Magnificat. And it's a hymn of praise that Mary sings to God for having the opportunity to give birth to the Messiah. But before we dive down into that text, I'd actually like to take a moment to give you some context around why she's saying this and the context in which she says it. So if you go back a little bit before in Luke's narrative, what happens is Mary goes and she visits her relative Elizabeth. And the reason why she goes, according to the story, is that she uh, has an encounter with the the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel says, hey, Elizabeth is pregnant, and she says, okay, I'm going to go see her. Now, it makes sense, right, that Mary would want to see Elizabeth because they both had these miraculous pregnancies. So Mary's much younger, Elizabeth's much older, but they would want to spend time together. But if you read between the lines, you can surmise that there's something a little more sinister at play going on here. And that is that according to Jewish law, Mary's pregnancy out of wedlock would require that her fiancé Joseph have her put to death. This is the scripture right here that actually states that. And even though technically they're not married yet, once you are engaged, according to that law, you fall under the same rubric. So... What we have to realize is that even though tomorrow night, and Katie, are you in here? No, is Katie not in here? She's going to do a beautiful job with the Christmas pageant, and it's going to be a wonderful story. We do it every year. It's wonderful to watch. The truth is, is that there's something a bit more dire in this, which is that you have to realize that even if Joseph believed her, that her pregnancy was the result of a miracle as opposed to being unfaithful, she would have a really tough time convincing her family of that, particularly his family of that, and the larger community. Now, the community, what you have to realize is that when something like that happened, the larger community actually would be pushing Mary's family to have her executed for being unchaste. So I want you to just put yourself in the context of that for a second. Like, put yourself there. Can you imagine what that would be like? Now, you have to remember also, Mary is not a woman in her 20s because Today, like, that's when women tend to get married, right? You're in your 20s, that's when you have children, all that stuff. No, she was a woman of marriageable age. What does that mean? How old is she? Younger, 12, 13 years old. Now, can you imagine what it was like? Do you remember what it was like when you were 12 or 13 years old? (laughs) A long time ago, right, TC? Yeah, you're so old. (laughs) So 12 12 or 13. Can you imagine what it would be like to have the possibility of being put to death. I mean, adults don't deal with that particularly well. I can't imagine what you would be like in that circumstance. And what you have to realize is that for ancient peoples who would have read this particular text, they would have automatically understood that this is the subtext behind Mary's pregnancy. And they would have understood that she had two options at her disposal. The first option is you stay, and if you stay, what's probably going to happen? You're going to end up getting put to death. Or what do you do? You you run away, right? And the text tells us, in a very nice way, that she ends up leaving. She gets out of harm's way. She travels into the hill country to be with her cousin Elizabeth until she comes to term. Now, I think this is very interesting because she ends up going to the one place where she is going to be welcomed and accepted with open arms. The one place where she's not going to be judged for her pregnancy. 
The one place where she's going to be shown unconditional love. Now, it's in this context that she speaks the words of the Magnificat, this hymn of praise to God. I want to just take a look at the first sentence of that, because I think the first sentence is, is really striking. All right. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Now, when we look at this word lowliness, we often think of the synonym of humble, right? That's kind of how we think of it. But when you look at the word in the Greek, it's a little bit different. What it really means is socially irrelevant. Remember, she's a peasant girl. She has no status. She has no rights. She's got a death sentence hanging over her head. And yet, what's interesting is that even though she's in this situation, in spite of these horrific circumstances, she makes the claim that future generations will call her blessed. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that when you look at the way Luke constructs his narrative, he does something quite brilliant with this. Because by having Mary go and visit Elizabeth and be with her, He's basically insinuating that Mary could not have spoken these words if she had not been in the presence of somebody who loved and cared for her. Can you imagine her speaking all of these words if she was back at home in her community when everybody's trying to put her to death? Future generations will call me blessed, by the way, as people are coming after her. You would never say that, would you? No, you have to be in a very different type of situation. And so what this tells us, and I think this is the most beautiful part of this whole story, is that when you bring love into the equation, even the most horrific of circumstances can become positive. And I think this is something that all of us in here can relate to on some level or another. I'm not saying you can relate to being a 12 or 13-year-old girl who's pregnant and looking at execution. If you can, you should come talk to me. I'd like to know about that story. But... (laughs) What I do believe is that all of us in here can relate to this, right? Because when you're in a really dark place, when you feel that the world is collapsing in on you, the one truth I know is that if you have love, you have hope. Am I right about that? If you have love, you have hope. If you're in a dark place and you have love, then you truly do have hope. And that means something. Because if you don't have that love then when you get into that dark place, you're going to feel a lot like what the author of Ecclesiastes talks about. And he begins this this whole book that he writes with all is vanity. Another way we could translate that, which would probably be better for the way we speak, is everything is meaningless. This book of the Bible, by the way. Um, Everything is meaningless. Now, that word that we translate as vanity or meaningless is havel. And havel, which... Is so fascinating. It actually also means vapor or breath. And so, what the author is saying is that human life is like breath it's here for a moment and then it disappears forever. Now, you want to know what's so challenging about that? Is that it's true, right? I mean, we don't like to think about it, but the truth is, is that our life is as impermanent as vapor. And we try to shove it off, right? We try not to think about all that stuff. We push it aside. But sometimes, when you catch a glimpse of that impermanence, it can really upend your world, can it? It really can. It can provide you with all these unsettling thoughts like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, what difference does it make? Does it even matter? These are questions we've talked a lot about over the last couple of weeks. And in fact... The author of Ecclesiastes, after saying everything is meaningless, actually goes on and poses that very question. This is what he says. 
He says, what do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? In other words, what do you get from all the work that you put in for your whole life? Like, what do you get out of that? Right? And his answer is not exactly reassuring, my friends. This is what he says. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Right? Nice how it rhymes like that, right? Even in English. So, in other words, humans like to ascribe a lot of importance and significance to the things that they do in their lives. But the truth is, is that what we're doing today is what humans have done for thousands of years before we were here, and it's what humans will do for thousands of years after we are gone. And what he's getting at is that we as human beings, we create meaning for ourselves. We are masters at creating narratives in our minds as to why our lives matter. And out of everybody in here, you know who the worst offender is in that? Me. Absolutely. My job as a pastor is to stand up here every week. One of the reasons why you come and you listen to me on Sunday is that I am trying to give you meaning in your life. I'm trying to help you discern the meaning. That has been the role and purpose of religion for millennia. The reason why religion persists even to this day, the reason why it's here even to this day, is because religion helps people understand purpose and meaning in their lives. If you feel meaningless in your life, and you come to church on Sunday morning, and I tell you that your purpose is to serve God and follow Jesus, and you didn't know that beforehand, then all of a sudden you have this brand new meeting and purpose that you didn't have before, right? Absolutely. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing, I think, that we can provide that. Now, of course, I actually believe that our purpose and meaning is to serve God and follow Jesus. But imagine for a moment that you're an outsider. You know nothing about the church. You come in and you listen to me say all this stuff. And you might sit there and say, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself because they've caught a glimpse of that meaninglessness. And they've come to the conclusion that life is just that. It's meaningless. This is why people end up becoming atheists. What's an atheist? It means you don't believe in in God, right? That's why you become an atheist. You sit there, you look at the universe, and you say, you know what? It's, there's no greater meaning. There's no greater purpose behind it. You looked at everything, and you say, yeah, there's nothing there. And so if i got to make up my own purpose, like, why waste my time on religion? Now, I sympathize with that position. I understand why people come from that point of view. It, it makes a lot of sense to me. But I'll tell you the reason why I'm not in their camp. And it's not just because of the experiences that I've had in my life. It's more importantly because of the experiences that other people have had who have been in that camp, the atheist camp, and then have come over to the other side. And perhaps one of the most amazing stories, one of the most compelling and profound stories of somebody who began as an atheist, didn't believe in God, and then eventually did believe in God, comes from a man, Dr. Eben Alexander IV. Now, Alexander, he's a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon. Not a dumb guy, right? We can all agree on that. So this guy, he grows up, he he goes to church like many people do, but he's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, it seems like maybe it's okay, whatever. And then he gets into his medical studies. And the further he gets into it, the more he comes to believe 
that there is no God, there is no afterlife, there's nothing more than what we can see directly in front of us. But all of that was challenged in the fall of 2008 when Alexander contracted a very rare form of bacterial meningitis. So he collapsed at home and he's rushed to the hospital. And when he gets there, the symptoms are not exactly in his favor. He's in a coma and there is no activity in his brain. The doctors were very upfront with his wife and they said, look, the likelihood of him surviving this bacterial meningitis is almost nil. Like he's probably not going to make it through. And even if he does, he's going to be brain dead and he's going to be permanently on life support. So things were not good for him. And this came as a huge surprise. It's not like he was sick before this. He was a super healthy guy. Things were going fine. And then he has this issue. He collapses and he gets taken to the hospital. But that's not the end of the story. Now, is it? That would make it for a pretty bad story, wouldn't it? <laughs> so, while he's in this coma, and while his brain is literally non-functional, he was having an experience. What we commonly referred to as an NDE, or a near-death experience. Now, I've spoken about near-death experiences in several different sermons before this one, but I want to kind of take you through what it is so that we're all on the same page with it. So a near-death experience generally occurs when somebody dies for a short period of time, and then they get this glimpse of the afterlife and are brought back. They come back to life. There are a number of different traits, actually 16 of them, that are associated with near-death experiences. But people vary in which of these traits apply to their particular situation. But this is generally what happens. Generally what happens is you flatline, and then wherever you are, your spirit kind of rises out of your body, and you see yourself. You're looking down at yourself. Now here, it can go in a bunch of different directions. But in 10% of those circumstances, the person will see a light. And that light will draw them in and they will end up in a heavenly realm. And it's there where they will often meet people from their past, people who have died. And sometimes they will even have the opportunity to meet God. Now, for those who have had these types of experiences, they will often tell you that this experience was one of the most transformative moments in their entire lives. It stays with them in a way that nothing else ever has. Now, with that said, Eben Alexander's experience was actually quite different. It didn't fit the normal pattern. So it's not like he went to the hospital and then he rose out of his body, he saw himself there, and then he went into a light. What he describes is how he slowly became aware that he was in this place of pulsating and pounding darkness. He uses the word primordial, almost as if he was submerged in mud. And he said that as he kind of became aware of what was happening, that he realized that there was no time in this place, almost as if he had always been there. That's what it felt like to him. And then he said that these animal faces would kind of submerge. They would come up and growl out of the mud. They would screech and roar, and then they would recede away again. And as he became more aware of what he was seeing, he started to feel fear and panic, and he wondered, how am I going to get out of this place? And just when the fear was about to overtake him completely, a being came, and it radiated these filaments of white and gold light, 
and it ended up ushering away all of the darkness around him. And the next thing he knew is he was flying over a countryside meadow, and he looked down, and he could see below him that there were all these beautiful trees and flowers, and he even saw people who were full of joy. And when he looked next to him, he could see that there were millions of butterflies flying alongside him, and there was also this woman who was there. And what he would discover is that this woman was there to be his guide. She was there to nurture and comfort him throughout this entire journey. Now, he talks about how this world, it felt like something out of a dream. But he said it felt real. In fact, he said it felt more real than the world you and I inhabit every single day here on earth. Now, he said, and I think this is so interesting, he said that this world, it was like he was part of the world and the world was part of him. The two were one. Although he had no function of language in this world, he was able to communicate. And he talked about how even though he couldn't use words, he said messages would pour through him like wind. And that his guide, as he was flying along, ended up giving him three messages, which translated into human language roughly go like this. You are loved and cherished dearly forever. You have nothing to fear. And there is nothing you can do wrong. Now these three messages, they were very, very important to him. They were very comforting to him. And as he would discover, these messages were being given to him for a very important reason. Because what he didn't know is that his guide was taking him at that moment to meet God. So at a certain point, as he's flying along, they start to go up higher and higher into the sky until eventually he's enveloped in total and complete darkness. It's completely pitch black around him. Now you would think that would be scary, but he said that it didn't feel that way. He said it was like being in the womb. It was warm. It was comforting. It felt good. And then there is where he had an encounter with the creator, the source, what we in the Christian religion refer to as God. Alexander would call God Om. Now, the sound of Om sounds like this. Now, that sound is the sound that you find in Buddhism and Hinduism, where they talk about that that sound is the sound of creation. And in ancient Sanskrit, one of the oldest written languages in the world, that sound is represented by a circle with a dot in the middle of it. And what that circle represents with that dot, it represents consciousness, wisdom, life, and it also represents the divine. Now, I find this to be so fascinating because when Alexander described God, this is how he describes it. Even though he's had no interaction with ancient Sanskrit whatsoever, he says that God is like an infinite orb made up of an inky darkness that is brimming with light. That's how he describes it. I'll say it again. God is an infinite orb made up of an inky darkness that is brimming with light. And he says at the core of God's being 
is pure and unconditional love. And so he said that the creator, the source, the Om enveloped him with this. And that God ultimately gave him a number of different messages. But perhaps the most important message that God gave to Alexander was this. God said that there are countless universes with countless beings, but at the core of all of those universes is love. And in fact, love is the overwhelmingly dominant force that undergirds all existence. And from there, he said that love is so incredibly great that Evil only exists in the smallest trace amounts. And the only reason why it's there at all is because we have been given free will. The ability to make our own choices. And that ultimately, those choices are what create the evil in the world, which we're allowed to do, right? But the hope is, is that we will be able to use that choice to grow and to reach our potential as people. And God assured Alexander, and I love this, he said, in the end, as much as evil can be dominant where you are, love will be triumphant. And from there, Alexander left God and went back to the primordial mud. And over the next seven days, while he was in this coma, Alexander would return to God again and again to receive these messages. And then, Against all odds, Alexander awoke from his coma, and he was totally and completely fine. Now, over the next couple of weeks, he clearly had to come to terms with what it is that he had experienced. But what was clear to everybody around him is that he was a fundamentally changed man, that he did not look at the world the same way that he used to. And as he slowly became more comfortable with what, what had happened to him, he, he started telling the people around him who he trusted. He told his family a little bit about what had happened to him. He started telling some of his colleagues. Now, his family, most of them believed him, but interestingly enough, his colleagues, who are physicians, he said that they treated him the same way he treated his patients when they would talk about having an experience like that, <laughs> which is they just dismissed him. They said, ah, whatever. And eventually, he wrote down all of his experiences in a book, It's called Proof of Heaven. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have read this book before, but if you haven't, I would highly, highly recommend that you read it. This book, in my opinion, is one of the most profound and compelling descriptions of God and the afterlife that I've ever read. In fact, when I come to somebody who's dying and they ask me, what should I read, Alex? I'll give them some Bible verses, but I will often give them this book. Because I think it is that compelling of a story. And if what he's talking about is true, and I hope it is, we are going to get to experience something amazing in the afterlife. I also would suggest you read it because I've left out a lot of details of this story. And some of the details I've left out affirm that his experience was more than just the misfiring of neurons in his brain, as some people have speculated. Now, as you might be able to imagine, Alexander is no longer an atheist. He very much believes in a God. Now, what's interesting, though, is that when he had his experience, he didn't really associate the encounter he had with God with any particular religion. But in recent years, as he's gone back and done a little bit more research on religions, he has come out and he said that he believes that Jesus' description of God in the New Testament is one of the closest approximations to what he experienced 
when he was having his NDE. Now, I think that that's very interesting that those two have similarities. And he also says that he believes that human beings do have a true purpose and meaning. We don't just make it up for ourselves. He believes that our job, our purpose, is to spread the love of God that we have in our heart to others because that love can heal the brokenness of our world. And I find that to be very interesting because doesn't that sound very similar to what we talked about earlier when we were discussing Mary? Remember the thing that I said? That when you bring love into the equation, even the most horrific of circumstances can become positive. And what he's telling us, a guy who I really believe has met God, is saying if you put that love out there, you can change the world for the better. And so why I love this is because what Alexander has shown us is that God is literally, literally a light in the darkness. And that God's unconditional love is the fabric that undergirds our universe. And tomorrow evening, we're going to talk about how we came to know God's light and love through the birth of Jesus. And so my hope for you is, is that you can be there for Christmas Eve because not only are we going to celebrate Jesus' birth, but it's the conclusion of this sermon series. If you're traveling and you can't be here, I want to wish you right now a Merry Christmas. But for those of you who will be here, I expect to see you tomorrow night. I look forward to seeing you. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.